I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show on NPR News, and I'm glad you're listening. The story at the heart of Marlon James' new novel feels like one of those nautilus shells you'd find on a golden beach. It's a swirl within a spiral within a swirl within a spiral. Stories within stories carried to your ear in enchanting language and incantations. Moon Witch Spider King is the second in a trilogy. The first was Black Leopard, Red Wolf. And this one tells the story of a centuries-old witch. Marlon James joins us from New York City. Welcome back to the show. It's really good to talk to you again. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. I want to talk about witches and (laughs) why they appear (laughs) in so many different kinds of mythology and folklore. So so I was thinking about this. It occurs Mm -hmm. to me that, you know, witches are everything human history has said women shouldn't be, deeply Mm -hmm. powerful, all-knowing merciless, shape-shifting, authoritative. They show up in so much literature. They show up in the Bible. So I want to know how, what kind of thinking you've done about witches. And then I have some other questions about that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've, what, the first thing that occurred to me um, looking at witches in all the cultures is more often than not, it's a term thrust upon women as opposed to a term that women claim. Um, even in Africa now, there's still Safeway houses, you could almost call them refugee camps, for women accused of witchcraft. Because it's a very easy way for a husband who wants to ditch one wife for a new one, or for family to kick somebody out of their inheritance, or to just get rid of somebody you like, you hate rather, to just simply accuse him of being a witch, and then that person has to flee. Um, it's, um, it's one of our, one of our oldest, um, ways of, of, you know, excommunicating people. Um, but it's also a rejection of, of, you know, it's a rejection of, of woman wisdom. Um, you know, it's a rejection of any sort of claim of authority that has always been with us. Um, why do we have widespread accusation of witchcraft because we have widespread hatred of women. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, at the same time, there is, there's always been, and I can speak just, you know, mostly from the research that I've done, a sort of an accumulated woman wisdom that um, has always been powerful and has always been, some people look at it as a threat. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of African societies are, are matrilineal. Um, you know, it's women who decided when to plant crops. It's women who um, sort of hold those villages and so on together. And then I think there is this idea that there must be something more supernatural to it. Um, and the answer to that is not that that's false. Is that it's just used as a way to to always been used as a way to define women, even if mm-hmm. they didn't they didn't take that definition themselves. Yeah, I mean. Witches show up in the Bible, in Macbeth, in the Renaissance, in American history. And I, I guess as you're saying, it is, a, it is a way to ostracize, it is a way to reject mm-hmm. wisdom, knowledge, authority that is perceived to have been taken and not granted, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
But there's also been, uh, you also find though that there is, or people claim the term, um, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, um, people go, yes, I am a witch or, or I don't subscribe to this sort of more for the, I was going to say Judeo Christian, but there are lots of, which is in all sorts of cultures that I am going to forge a path that you have not laid out for me. And mm-hmm. I think that's it too. I mean, you know, we forget that up to around the 1930s, spontaneity was still considered a mental illness in women. <laughs> so the idea of women forging a path that has absolutely nothing to do with a male gaze or society is something that still scares a lot of people, but there's still mm-hmm. women who have always claimed that. This is probably why, if you look at artwork of witches from the medieval era, You'll see them mm-hmm. portrayed as misshapen, distorted, mm-hmm. you know, malevolent figures. I- I'm interested in, you've talked about African mythology and some of the other mythology and um, literature that you've done research on. You're from Jamaica. I'm curious about how witches are seen in Caribbean myth mm-hmm. and literature. Well, I guess the closest we come to to witches in, in the Caribbean is, is Ole Heeg, or Ole Heeg, H-I-G-E, who is also a shape-shifting witch mm-hmm. who will come for your blood and, 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 and change form um, and use to, to, to scare children. Um, there's that person. In Jamaica, there's also the Obia woman who, you know, at the core is really a medicine woman because the core of Obia is still potions, um, you, know, it's the, you know, drink this, drink this to make him love you, drink this to, to, to such and such. Um, it's, it's um, you know, it, usually when we say medicine, the noun that usually follows is man. Um, right. But the Obia woman is a medicine woman. Um, yes, the person can work curses as well and so on, but that's how it's taken. And, and it's still, in Jamaica, there are still huge parts of the country that believe um, b- believe them, and and I think because of that belief, they have they still have that you know they have that power. But you know, there's certain parts of Jamaica. There's a parish in Jamaica called Saint Thomas, and usually you tell people, "Yeah, you know, I was away. I was in Saint Thomas last night." They go, "Oh, <laughs> what does that mean?" If you've gone there for the you've night, gone to, you clearly have gone to an Obia woman or an Obia man. <laughs> Huh. to work some sort of curse or some sort of blessing. <laughs> um, huh. so there, it's, but it's, 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 um, it says something that in both cases, more often than not, the, the, the term is evoked to scare. Mm-hmm. H- have you been to one of these Obia men or women for yourself? No, I haven't. I should. I got some back pains. I should <laughs> <laughs> You need a a blessing that. What about cursing? I mean, do people do people believe you can bring the name of someone to these people, and mm-hmm. that there's a direct relationship between what will happen to the people whose name you've you've submitted and whatever magic these people mm-hmm. have worked. I'm not saying there might not be some kind of relationship. There might. Mm-hmm. But um, but what's the what's the tenet of the belief there? I think the belief 
there are lots of ways of looking at it that if everybody believes it, then that will make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, my, a friend of mine talks about how, um, at a funeral, uh, they were there for a grandmother's funeral. And one night her cousin just was screaming in the night because a pillow is floating in the air and, um, people rush in and go, you're just dreaming. You're just dreaming. And she goes, no. And they all look up and see a pillow floating in the air. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so is it that? The pillow was floating, or okay. is has hysteria contagious? Um, the answer to both is yes. I think mm-hmm. that um, you know these things need believers, and if you believe, then reality does sort of shifts for you, and it does happen. I think you know it's it's it, the, 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 we could argue about how much of this is true and how much of this is belief, and does the belief make it true? Um, all day. My theory, loose theory, is that what they're really doing is sort of throwing things out into the universe mm-hmm. and then seeing mm-hmm. what cosmic forces will act on it. Right. Um, it's a belief, and it's a very it's, it's it's always been a pagan belief that everything is alive, and that everything has power and energy, and that at witchcraft you are simply sort of manipulating that energy, sometimes for good, sometimes not for good. I mean, when you describe this, it doesn't sound all that different from prayer. You are well, it's not really act, right. I mean, you're activating mm-hmm. the the emotional power. You, I mean, you've mm-hmm. heard of those prayer chains, right? The mm-hmm. emotional power of a lot of people to, as you described, throw it out into the universe. Yeah. Why? I why mean, do you think I- prayer isn't seen as threatening, but? You know, some kind of which I guess sanctioned mm-hmm. by some religious mm-hmm. deity, right? I think. Well, I, I think because prayer, for the most part, tends to be Judeo-Christian or Muslim. It still tends to be. We still look at prayer as one of the the Abrahamic, if that's a word, fates, mm-hmm. and that gives it a sort of you know a sort of legitimacy. Um, when you're, you know, sort of praying to something pagan, I think a lot of people immediately think pagan means satanic, which is not a new thing either. You know, the, the, the sort of link links between witches and Satanism. And I always point out, you know, to believe in Satan, you have to believe in God. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and neither figure in, in, in those, in those, in, you know, in that mix. Um, that may also explain why somebody who is simply an unlicensed pharmacist <laughs> because they're making potions, some of which work, some don't, which sounds like any other pharmacy, <laughs> that the, the, you know, that the, the stigma that of, of witchcraft gets thrust upon them. I'm like, no, they're, you know, in nowadays, we, nowadays we kind of call it alternative medicine. But the witches were there hundreds of years before us, That's right. before that. That's right, yeah. Um, Sogolan, am I pronouncing that right? How do you pronounce her? It's Sogolan. There's no stress on any syllable. Okay. So she appears um, in the first of the trilogy, but she takes mm-hmm. center stage. Can I say this right? She takes center stage mm-hmm. in, in this. Yeah. I'm. I'm curious about whether there were mythological and historical templates for the way you 
really fleshed out her character in this mm-hmm. for the person that she became in this in this novel. Well, first there's the name Sugalun, which I actually took from Sugalun, who what was the mother of Sundiata, who's the actual Lion King we talk about. Um, we, when we, when you talk, mention Lion King in, in West Africa, particularly in Mali, they think you mean Sundiata, not Simba. Huh. <laughs> and the story is pretty much the same. You know, Simba, not Simba, Sundiata's uncle seizes the throne. He has to go off in exile and has to build an army and reclaim his throne back. Um, but his mother was Sugalun, and I and I, I think I took the name I took the name from that um, from her, um, but also you know the the the, the a lot of African not a lot there are a few African epics that have women at the center, and some of them are also witches, um, and I wanted to go back and sort of interrogate that that what. Well, not just what are the stories about women, but what are the stories about women that women tell each other? Mm-hmm. That women tell each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, you know, and those, and that's a, that sometimes is a very different um, kind of story. I, uh, you know, the, the, the old woman, the matriarch, the person who has seen, seen life, you know, I've always, you know, held with a very high esteem in African societies. And, um, and I think that's from what, that's what Sugodan gets her authority from. Not just, you know, not just because she is 177 years old. She's actually older than that. But, but also, you know, because of, um, what she's seen and what she's experienced. And, and, um, and I think there's a lot of that also that where, where she gets her, her authority from, 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 you know, just the experience of, 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 of living in these worlds. Um, but I also, not, you know, was trying to write a kind of an epic story with a woman at the center of it. Cause a lot of times, even in ancient African stories, only men get the epics. <laughs> it's true. I, I don't mm. want to miss something that you said before we go on. You said the stories that women tell each other are mm. different than the stories that maybe men tell each other or men tell women. How, mm-hmm. how are the stories female to female? How, how well, are they different? So, well, some of the, funny enough, there is a really great story about a cannibal witch, funny enough. Um, and you think it would end, it would, it would, it would go the way you, you think it would, but she's defeated by her own daughter and her daughter's best friend. <laughs> uh-huh. who, who sort of outwit her. One day, it's, it's, it's the earliest example I can think of of a story that passes the Bechdel test. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> there are no mention of any men in it. And the funny thing is, when the, when the cannibal witch realizes she's beaten, it's not like Snow White where she's burnt and tossed. She just goes, well, you know, I had a good run. I'm going now. <laughs> See, that is so female. <laughs> yeah. Dust yourself yeah. off. Pick yourself up for the next epic adventure. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and it's it's you know it's wonderful. And again, yeah, that's the the, the stories that I tell. I think also um, because there is no sort of gentrification of storytelling in general. That mm. most of the men in these stories are the men who are telling you the story is a trickster. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, okay, I don't quite believe what you're telling me, but tell me anyway. <laughs> so, is it true that a novelist once told you that you didn't know how to write women oh, and that yeah. you really had to learn? That's true? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. It, it was Elizabeth Nunez? Elizabeth Nunez, a Trinidadian novelist. Um, I was at a workshop and I showed her excerpts from my first novel and she was like, yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're a pretty good writer, but you don't have a clue about women. <laughs> and What'd you say in the, in the moment? What did you say to that? I got all Republican Senator on them. I was like, <laughs> I have a mother. <laughs> I have sisters. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure I'm not the first nor the last person to say that. And then she, but then she hit back on how many women have you read? And I probably could name five, and they were all dead. Really? Yeah. Mm. Um, did she mean women characters, or did she mean women writers? Oh, she meant women writers. And mm. the point she was coming at, but she left it up to me to discover it, is that there are certain lessons in writing you're never going to learn from a teacher. You can only learn through reading. And I think there is a sensibility about how not just women, any character should be that the best teacher you're going to come across are people who have done it and done it well. Um, so, you know, she's the reason why, you know, I became a devotee of Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't just Toni Morrison. So just read Alice Walker, read, read, um, you know, read Iris Murdoch, read Muriel Spark. Read Gail Jones, read Paul Marshall, um, read Kathy Acker. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yeah, there, there are things, I, one of the things I learned, which I don't think I'd have learned otherwise, is that, you know, it's, it's, it's not whether, what you put the characters through, put them through anything you want, but we ha it has to be grounded in a sort of reality where we believe them, that these women have agency, that these women made choices. Uh, or if they didn't, it makes it very clear why. Um, one of my characters in A Brief History of Seven Killings, a lot of times, doesn't have agency. And if I had left it that way, then I'd have left, I wouldn't have had a, it, the, the lack of agency would have transferred to me. It wouldn't be that I'm writing about a woman bound. It would be, it would be me binding a woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like... Um, do you know, does a person know the difference between a novel with a homophobic character and a homophobic novel? And I think mm -hmm. there's a difference between a novel with a sexist character and a sexist novel. And I think that's what you're saying. I said, you thought I shouldn't have my female characters do crazy stuff. She's like, no, keep the crazy stuff. But I need to have a sense that these characters through their choices and sense of choices or not being given choices ended up here. So, and that's so what I let me ask. Yeah, let me ask you about that. Does that mm -hmm. mean then things are not just happening to the women in your later writing? They are they are igniting a series of events. They are, as you say, making mm -hmm. the choices and the decisions and mm -hmm. changing the shape of the events to come. Is that yeah, it? Yeah, that is it. But it's also reeling from not being given choices. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I had a situation where my character isn't given any choice, but there's no reaction to that, then that's just as bad mm-hmm. as just not giving them choices at all. There's some, you know, um, I write about women mostly set in the past. That means a lot of choices they didn't get to make. Mm-hmm. But it's one thing to acknowledge that and have your characters chafe against these restrictions and another thing to simply act as if they're, it, they aren't there. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that to me, to, that to me is, is, is different. The character doesn't have to be free. I, I mean, I wrote a novel where characters were literally slaves. But I have to see them react against, chafe against, sometimes learn, grow to accept or rebel against those things. And that to me is, is the beginning of a, you know, of a three-dimensional character. I wonder if you found that writing the interior life of a male character and a female character is significantly different or not. Um, it's a good question. I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know if it, if it's significantly different. I know, I do know I actually prefer writing uh, female characters. I, I do prefer writing women to men. I'm like, um, they're. Well, wait, hold on. Why? Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, man, if I knew that, I'd write a book on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, th- I don't know. I think, um, Weirdly enough, I think I understand, I may understand certainly my female characters' fear and desires more mm. um, than with with men. I didn't grow up with a lot of men around. Um, and I've also, you know, and, and even, even, you know, I'm certainly post-Elizabeth Newton speaking to me, I actually don't read a lot of men. Huh. It's not deliberate. I just, I just kind of don't. <laughs> um, and, and it's, it's, it's. And I'm not. I'm, I don't. And I don't think it was anything deliberate. I picked up a novel this morning. I'm like, oh my god, I'm reading a man. It's been a while. <laughs> what was it, by the way? Oh, it's Ian McEwan's *A Cement Garden*. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 um, I I think I, here's why I I think it's still they're still very different. Not that I think their characters or their desires or their conflicts or their prejudices are any different, but the impact that their actions have on society in a whole and how society regard them are profoundly different. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes it make them different for me. It's not their inner character so much as the world in which they have to react, respond to. So, so, and, and that is why, that's kind of why I asked you the question, because the interior perception of how the world is reacting to you as a woman, to me as a woman, let's say, is, I mean, it's something that we are steeped in, you know, from mm-hmm. infanthood, it's mm-hmm. something that we we kind of we swim in that ocean, right? It is second nature to notice how the world is reacting to the way we are. That is it sounds like that's something that you began to understand when you were reading a lot of these these great women writers. I mean yeah. it, it's maybe what Elizabeth was talking about. 
Yeah, I think it's absolutely. I think there that is um, a, a wisdom. I think that you you don't necessarily learn from just listening to people because it's secret wisdom. I think, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and also it's it's. Um, I mean, there honestly. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. There are very few male writers you can read and learn that. That's for sure. Right. <laughs> did did somebody come to mind that you'd say, "Yes, here's a male writer besides you uh, that you can that you can really tap into that secret wisdom." Who um, comes to mind on that? That's a good question, and that's my weird way of saying. I'm not sure. It's, 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 um, I mean, I don't think I'd make like a hard statement that men cannot write women. No. Because I think Richard Powers does it very well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, I was going to see if I can think of anybody else other than Richard Powers. (laughs) Well, he's a good, have you read (laughs) Bewilderment yet? Not yet, but I do have Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So again, there are. I told him he wrote the last novel that made me cry. Which was uh, which was understory? the time? Of, no, Overstory? the time of our singing. Oh wow! Hmm. It's yeah. I felt I couldn't tell the last time I read a novel where I rooted for everybody in the book, and I so wanted them to be happy. And when I knew <laughs> they weren't, I just cried. <laughs> <laughs> but if you and it sounds like you read everything he writes, you know that there's always this poignancy to even if it looks like they've prevailed there's all this mm-hmm. poignancy to you know yeah. to to the win yeah That's i'm kind of in i i, I want to write like him in my next life i'm kind of in awe of him <laughs> <laughs> i'm carrie miller and you're listening to my friday book show i'm in conversation with marlon james about his new novel Moon Witch, Spider King. It's the second in a trilogy. I think this would be a great time, if if you're game for this, Marlon, to read the excerpt that you've chosen. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we've been talking about the power and authority and shape-shiftingness of Sagalan, the the witch, the powerful witch at the center of this. Um, Tell us a little bit about what's going on before you read the excerpt. Mm-hmm. So um, this is pretty far into the book. It's almost near the end. And Sugarland has developed this reputation, this fearsome reputation as the Moon Witch. Anytime anybody evokes that name, it's used in a way which all we always use witch to evoke terror, to scare people. She's not necessarily, you know, unhappy about that reputation, but she is in this scene... Um, recovering from a pretty horrible tragedy, horrible horrible atrocity done to her, actually, and she's recovering. And she, in all her years, over a century of doing things, have never seen the impact of what she's done. And this is a scene where she actually comes face-to-face with... um, you know the 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 impact. She's in. A, of she's being in a. She's witch. on a. Let's call it a bed or a cot, recovering from from her injuries, um, and they're pretty serious. But she is here recovering, and she basically op- wakes up, opens up to see all these women approaching her. More women come into the room as it get lighter. 
and still more women, or perhaps I was seeing them all for the first time. You don't remember me, one of them say. She wear a band around the eyes that her husband take away from her. After you write the wrong done to me, the woman teach me how to see. With my fingers, my ears, and my nose, she says she paint clay on my skin with grace. After my father killed my mother, he take to me, say another. The night you come, he was heading to my sister's bed. You don't know me, for then I was no woman, say yet another. I call each of those women my sisters since then. You remember us? The girls kidnapped in that caravan headed to Marabanga. They were taking us out to sea to sell us off as wife and concubines. We were seven and eight. Each night they take one of us to test the goods and that girl would never return. That night you swooped down on my roof was the night I know the gods didn't forget us. Every woman in this room, touched by the moon witch, step forward, the Nim-Nim woman say. And every woman in the room look at me and approach the bed and surround it. They take their time and let the quiet shuffle do the talking. Some look like faces I supposed to remember. Some look like faces I used to know. Many of them old. Some of them older than the child they was when they see the moon witch. Woman with a gele from the east on her head. Woman with the igia of the south on her. Woman in white like nuns. Woman in rainbow like queens. Mother and daughter and sister and woman with no one. Woman with one eye, one ear, one leg, no legs. Woman, other woman holding up. Woman from the top of Mantha and from the bottom of Marabanga. Ghosts of women who come back from the other world to see the moon witch. And a crabby one who say, boy, she did love that silver. Some with mouths packed to the brim with words waiting to explode. Some nodding quietly, their eyes saying, we see you, sister. Woman who steal a touch of my shoulder, forehead. Woman who grab my hand until another pull my hand into theirs. They packed the room right up to the doorway and still more was outside, waiting to squeeze themselves in. A girl wormed through them to touch me and say, they couldn't move my mother, so she sent me. Moon which still flying through the trees, says another, and now plenty women writing the wrongs. Plenty in North and South saying, Moon witch, she is me. Wow. Marlon James reading from his new novel, Moon Witch, Spider King, the second in a trilogy. It is such a pleasure to hear these words. You know, reading it to yourself, I mean, the voices, I'm just never going to have the rhythm and the <laughs> sound and the beauty of the way you you read it. Here's something I'm curious about. Is there a distinct difference in the rhythm of the language in this novel compared to the first in the trilogy? Yes, there is actually. Um, I think some of it some of it is actually pretty technical for the most part even though it's not you know and no language is 100% one thing but for the most part Sutherland speaks in the present tense Mm -hmm. and also for the most part um she takes you know singular verbs which is something I you know something I paid attention to writing her it's very much in keeping with an African language like Wolof 
where verbs remain present tense no matter what the tense. Um, you know, there there is no such word as went. Is he hmm. did go or soon go or won't go or can't go or did go or done go or even going to go. Verbs are ver, act, in in those languages. Action never ends. Action is always present tense, and I thought that was really interesting, and it gives it a certain uh, immediacy. Um, mm-hmm. There was that, but I also wanted something. It's not it's not exactly Nigerian pigeon because that would take a long time. Some of this is even just the influence of Jamaican patois, but I knew that Sogolon would speak with a different kind of dialect than Tracker. And not just because mm-hmm. they come from two different places, but also you know they they, they were raised differently, and 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 I and I knew that she would have you know more of her own tongue. I mean, she spent a good century living with no one, <laughs> so I knew her voice had to be uniquely hers and nothing like trackers. So, so this must be part of the art of carrying a sound, a sensibility through a trilogy and yet bringing, you know, very distinct kind of characterization, but also, Mm -hmm. you know, some kind of consistency. I know these people. I'm back in this world. And that the world doesn't feel like it was kind of pulled out from under your your feet when you get into the second trilogy. Does that make any sense? Yeah. But at the same time, I had to, I had to not fall into sequelitis because I wasn't <laughs> writing that? that kind of sequel. Whereas I'm not, I wasn't writing a part two. And not yeah. only was it not non, not only was I writing something nonlinear, I had to remember that Sugarland has no idea what Trekker said. Right. Right. And it would have been very easy for me oh to just gosh. write a point by point rebuttal of the first book. Yeah. But and I and I started out doing that. Then I went, but hold on, she wouldn't have known anything that he said. Because <laughs> Tracker's not, telling we should tell listeners who maybe mm-hmm. haven't read the first book in the trilogy, mm-hmm. he's telling the story. Right. And she figures into the telling. Yeah, she figures into the telling, and for the most part, she's one of the antagonists of that preview right. of that story. Right. Um, it would have been very easy for me to just turn it into a book long version of reader, please like me, kind of thing. <laughs> um, and 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 as I say, it would have been easy. It would have been too easy to simply have her rebut everything he said. Um, instead, but that would give her a knowledge that I have as a writer, she doesn't have as a character. And also it would make it seem as if what's important to track her or what's important in the first book is important in the second. And it's not, so it's not even that she's coming out against his testimony. She's oblivious to his testimony. What's, she has no idea what his testimony is whatsoever and doesn't care really. Um, and because of that, you know, I had to in a weird way, forget the first book. That actually came back to haunt me later on when, when there were just way too many inaccuracies. Thank God for readers. Because <laughs> then I had to go, oh, wait, it can't be that far. <laughs> so I had to go back and line everything up. But no, I had to write it as if this was the first book. Wow. Which um, oh is why, honestly, people ask me all the time, can, do they have to read the books in order? I'm like, oh, abs- absolutely not. 
Yeah. What you're talking about is kind of a selective amnesia because, again, to create a sensibility of this world that feels in some way familiar. I mean, I open this Mm -hmm. book and I think, oh, yeah, I recognize that. I Mm -hmm. That feels a little familiar. So you can't wipe the slate completely clean, can you? Right. No, um, because you're still, I'm still, you know, moving around in a world that has already been established. Right. Um, And it's still ultimately, Sutherland still has to answer a question, and it's really the same question Tracker got asked, which is what happened to the boy? Mm -hmm. Um, Sutherland's answer, you know, in a very, a very, a Cliff Notes version of her answer is, the story is bigger than the boy. Let me tell you how big it is. Um, but it's the, the um, there. You know, she is. Tra- you know, she is traveling to a huge, to a large extent, in the same territory. And even when she's experiencing things a century removed, it, um, you know, you you see the relationship between that past and the present, and how one thing comes to affect the other, and how in a in a way she finds herself reliving some of the same things that she started out, you know, at the, the beginning of the book. Um, so she's, yeah. And I, and I, um, it was a, it's a, it was a, it was a, it was a hard dance at times writing it in a way in which the person for whom this is the first book doesn't feel as if they're losing something or they are missing something that they have to read the previous one, but also that the person who read the previous book is coming to this and don't feel they're covering stale territory. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, this is why I was, I was suggesting this kind of spiral within a swirl within a spiral. I guess what I want to know about that is how far in do you get to, let's say a novel like the new one, Moon Witch, mm-hmm. Spider King, and feel like you found your way through those spirals. The, it's funny. I think the, the, the first page that I actually wrote is now on page 384 in the book. Oh, wow. oh um, which says, I'm among opening. other things, one, yeah. I usually, you know, I, even I can't start a novel at the beginning. I'll start where it first appears in my head. And usually that takes me to what the real beginning would be. And I wrote a good 40 pages. Those fir- those 40 pages from 384 um, was what I started to write first. And then I jumped to a flashback and that became the beginning of the novel. Um, I sometimes have to go pretty far into a story before I know what the story is. Hmm. And before I know who, who the story is about. Um, even though what I begin writing usually ends up in a novel. It's never at the beginning. I've, I've yet to write a novel where my beginning chapter is, is a beginning chapter people read. Um, because it's, it's, um, I'm, I'm still, even with a book like this, where the world, the, a lot of the world building has already been done, it took a good 50, 60 pages to, to situate myself and the character, um, you know, in the story. And uh, and realizing, oh, this is where we begin, or this is how far I have to immerse myself into 
into before I know. Usually, I I find myself immersing into something that I think is the present, and so far, five, four, three times, four times out of five, that actually ends up being the future, not the present. And then the past ends up being the present. Um, but it gives me a context. It gives me a point to work towards. Knowing what page 384 is, then I can work from page one to 384 and then figure out the rest. Um, I mean, it, it takes such confidence to wonder through these spirals, as I think mm-hmm. of them, and think, I will find myself, you know, at the light, and that's where I'll know where mm-hmm. I am, how, where I've situated. I mean, yeah, right? And confidence? Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's more like craziness than confidence. <laughs> <laughs> I always say, there's usually a point when I'm writing where I just said to myself, you know what? I'll just leave it in until my editor takes it out. <laughs> um, that usually doesn't happen, thank God. Uh, but yeah, it's. Um, I don't know if I, I know of writing books any other way than just sort of the uh, spirals almost at the edge of chaos. Mm-hmm. And and sort of working through that to see if I have a, a cohesive narrative here, but that's I all my I think all my novels come out of chaos. Hmm. So I have the advanced reader's copy of the book, and there is a note at the beginning that there are seven maps to come, mm-hmm. and I want to ask you about those maps. Are those maps? that you draw at some point in the working your way through, and then you hang them somewhere in your writing room and they really help to bring the worlds alive or, or don't you need them in that way? Um, I mean, you pretty much answered my question. (laughs) I do start by drawing a sort of rudimentary map. Um, one, because, you know, I, I, I mean, it is still, it's still fantasy and I'm still in some ways building as I go along. And if I'm writing a novel about New York, I have enough knowledge about New York. If I write a novel about Minneapolis, I pretty much have a good knowledge of Minneapolis so that I can simply walk throughout um, Minneapolis. Um, somewhere like, you know, an imagined world is not, building it is, is just the beginning. The characters have to move through it. And I think because of that, uh, maps become pretty important pretty early. So what I usually do is sketch something, um, just enough mm-hmm. to, to get me through the novel. And um, the the initial novel inspires the maps. And then once the maps are drawn, funny enough, the maps then inspire the novel. Um, oh, you know, wow. it's, it's, I know that, uh, that that person has to head north or head south. There was a trip in my book that I think took a few days. And then when I, after drawing a map, I realized, oh no, this has to take a few months. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Um, and, but you know, it's, it reminds me something Edith Wharton said about setting. She said, setting is a definer and a confiner. And I've always liked that because the, the maps help me define the world, but it also is a, it restricts me as well. Mm-hmm. And I actually quite like the restrictions. I like being known the person can't go down that street because that street is, is a dead end 
or so on. And, and it's it's it it inspires me in a way in which writing about an actual place, I think, would inspire someone. Um, but that's where the maps become pretty crucial. So by I would say maybe a th- maybe halfway through those maps go from being sketches to actual real things. And even then they get, they get changed because I remember um, after I've actually handed in a few drafts, completely reimagining one of the cities, which I forget the name of now. And um, of course I had to, you know, go and, and change the map, but yeah, I um, that, that they, they became what, you know, that Eden Wharton thing. The maps became my definer and my confiner. You're listening to Marlon James, and we're talking about his new novel, Moon Witch, Spider King, the second in a trilogy. The first novel was Black Leopard, Red Wolf. But as Marlon says, you don't have to read them in order. But here's something that, that I'm really curious about. So I read this novel the way I read the first novel in the trilogy, wondering if this was the novel where I was going to get the straight story. Mm -hmm. Because I knew I couldn't, I knew there were reasons not to trust the telling in the first novel, Mm -hmm. but I also see clues that there were reasons not to trust the telling in this novel. And here's Mm -hmm. what I want to know. How you make a voice of a character convincing, you know, possessed of Mm -hmm. conviction, even as you are creating this, but can you believe her? Can you believe Mm -hmm. the way this story is unfolding? So how do you do that? Well, I think I have to believe her for, for it to work. When I wrote the first novel, I absolutely believed Tracker. And which is why I say I had to forget that novel when writing this one because I have to believe her too. Um, so it's this why her story ends up the way it is. Um, I think if if this book was merely a note by note, point by point response to to um, to Tracker's story, then it's merely just an argument that Tracker lied. Mm-hmm. Um, she hasn't heard his argument, and I had to remember that. But I had to believe her. So no, I uh, people ask who do I believe, Tracker or Moonwitch? My answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but I guess I'm I'm asking more about the the skill involved in infusing mm-hmm. a character's telling, a character's voice, like Sagalon, with conviction. Mm-hmm. And even though, and, and yet building this little structure underneath it that says, but can you believe it? Can you believe it? Mm-hmm. I mean, the well, power of, of it, that, yeah. Yeah. Well, part of it is me going back to African folklore. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember my grandfather telling us Anansi stories. And Anansi in, in African, a lot of African mythology and folklore is a trickster spider. Um, or, you know, the con man who never usually succeeds, but he tries to con anyway. And um, in Jamaica, when they tell you a folk story, they usually there's a call and response, which doesn't, doesn't necessarily play out in standard English. Um, I tell you a story, and I show Jack Mandora, and you say, me not choose none. Which loosely translated is, that's my story, do you believe it? 
And my, concept, my response is, no, I don't. Tell me another one. <laughs> wow. so, so, there, so there is, in a, very, in, a, in a very basic way, me trying to return to African oral storytelling where you can't trust anybody, in, including a storyteller. What does it mean? It means that the burden of truth is depend is is actually based is actually left on your belief. So the third volume in this, um, you know, those people are gonna that narrative is gonna believe they're telling the truth as well, and the reader is gonna have to pick up these three books and go, okay, who's telling the truth here, or does that really matter? Okay, uh, it's like Who? Life of Pi. Do you want the le- Do you want the story with the tiger or without the tiger? <laughs> <laughs> um, does it matter? I, I, I guess I'm the kind of reader that will, on reading your third in the trilogy, try to figure out who told me the truth i maybe mm-hmm. maybe this is something about the way i don't want to live with ambiguity or something <laughs> how much does it matter how much does it matter i you know i um truth is a lot of things but it's also an act of reduction um you know it's and as i mean why you know that's how that's how we're raised that's how we're socialized that's how that's one of our, you know, bedrock things we can hold on to, you know, these truths that remain certain. Um, one thing you learn writing historical novels and, and fantasy fiction is that truth changes all the time. Uh, you know, it's, it's, at one time, the, a flat earth was a truth. Um, at one time, you know, the sun revolving around the earth was a truth. Um, Truth changes all the time. It's it's we, it, we we it's it's amazing something so amorphous we consider solid. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that the solidity is m- more a matter of our needing it to be solid as opposed to it actually being that way. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. One of the things that our ancestors knew that we've forgotten is that that some a lot of times truth is a choice. I mean, we see it now. We see we see people having different ideas, different truths about January the sixth. Mm-hmm. Not to get political, but yeah, uh, yeah. go ahead. You know, um, but it's it's it, you know it's it's um, how much of this is what we choose to believe, and how these societies we have that we consider primitive understood all of that. But it also means, as the listener or the reader, you have some detective work to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'm just presenting clues. I'm not, you know, I'm not telling you what what to make of them. And I think that's the thing. Moonwitch and Black Leopard, they're just they're just presenting clues. They're just presenting data. Um, you know, who you believe is really going to be up to you. You know, it's really interesting that you chose um, Flat Earth as one of your examples uh, mm-hmm. for. You know, who believes what truth? Because I am reading a nonfiction book by a journalist who covers conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. and the flat earth people. That conspiracy theory has gained new life. And what is so revealing in this book is that they come to that theory with all of the conviction and certainty 
mm-hmm. that we that, that you know you would declare it's obvious the science shows and so what you said about it's what you need to believe right mm-hmm. is so true mm-hmm. yeah. even in a situation like that yeah um sometimes it's it's and i said this is somebody who who you know came out of evangelical church Sometimes the mm-hmm. force of your belief and the conviction in the belief, because there's no other thing, there's no other choice, or you tell yourself there's no other thing to believe, that it becomes its own truth. It's um, it's the it's you really putting force into your convictions, and sometimes uh, my theory about this is that that in itself is what becomes the truth. It's not the that it's true. It's the effort. Interesting. Um, yeah, uh, that that gives it this sort of credence. You're you're believing it so hard that, that it's the hardness of the belief that you're actually calling truth. So and, you've put and, all of this force and this dedication into yeah. holding up this truth, and you're saying that's what makes it. That's true. what makes it because because real. I mean, hmm. I I. I I think a truth is something you can be lazy about. I can be lazy <laughs> about mean? gravity. <laughs> I, gravity it just doesn't is. need a f- yeah, it, it, yeah, I don't need the force of my convictions to make gravity happen. I can be pretty lazy in gravity. Think about gravity. You have to work to believe the earth is flat. And I think sometimes it's the it's the work. It's like being in a 70-30 relationship. Sometimes they don't realize what you're having here is work, and you're into the work. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you can be lazy about truth anymore. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I read this book about conspiracies, and I see, just as you do, what unfolds mm-hmm. and carries the day as so-called truth. Mm-hmm. Maybe we've gotten too lazy about self-evident truths, right? Mm-hmm. Either we got too lazy or we got too lazy about science. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, 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 um, I don't know if it's, if we go through these cycles, I was thinking this very morning, I would hate that in, in, you know, that in 20, in 2095, somebody's going, feminism, it's for everyone. We just discovered it last week. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've been obsessed with reading about two, 1919 to 1922 to see if any of these things that we're fighting now we were fighting then and lost mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what are you and learning about yeah, that some of them yeah we, we had as many people burning masks in 19 in 19 you know 1916 as we do now when that when the flu was ravaging America, we have we we had we had the vac you know we had the the um, disease deniers then too. Um, so it's it's it makes me wonder about that. If if um, it's not a, we're not going through cycles where we become smarter and learn things that we've learned then lost it and have to relearn them again. I find that so discouraging. Do you, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, that it's never it's, just I don't, done. I don't know if it's, it's my fear. I don't know if it's going to happen. Um, but it's we're, we're going through a few weeks where people are thinking they're being quite rational to go back to banning books that I thought we were past that now. Mm, yeah, right. 
And it's it's um yeah it's um people if the people think it's only mouse they need to talk to their neighborhood librarian she has a lot to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Amen, mm. Marlon. It, it is always such a pleasure to spend time with you and talk about reading and books and what else you've got in your mind. Thank you. Thank you so much. Marlon Jane's new novel is called Moonwitch. Spider King. <laughs>